Nanya manya sadu kamicheya Mataya taniyam putam Ayusayeka putamanurake Evampisaba butesu Mana sambavaya parimanam Metam shasabalokasmim Mana sambavaya parimanam Udhammado chatiriyancha Asambadam averam asapatam Titansharam nizinova Sayanovaya vatasa Vigatamidhu Etam satim maditeya Brahmametam viharamidamaho Dithinchanupagama Silavadasanena sampano Kameso vineagedam Nahijato gabaseyam Punariti What should be done by one who is skilled in wholesomeness to gain the state of peacefulness is this. One should be able, upright, straight and not proud, easy to speak to, mild and well content, easily satisfied and not caught up in too much bustle and frugal in one's ways, with senses calmed, intelligent, not bold, not being covetous when with other folk, abstaining from the ways that wise ones blame, and this the thought that one should always hold, may beings all live happily and safe, and may their hearts rejoice within themselves, whatever there may be with breath of life, whether they be frail or very strong, without exception be they long or short, or middle-sized, or be they big or small, or visible or invisible, or whether they dwell far or they dwell near, those that are here, those seeking to exist, may beings all rejoice within themselves, let no one bring about another's ruin and not despise in any way or place. Let them not wish each other any ill from provocation or from enmity. Just as a mother at the risk of life loves and protects her child, her only child, so one should cultivate this boundless love to all that live in the whole universe, extending from a consciousness sublime, upwards and downwards and across the world, untroubled, free from hate and enmity. And while one stands and while one walks and sits, or one lies down still free from drowsiness, one should be intent on this mindfulness, this is divine abiding here, they say. But when one lives quite free from any view, 
is virtuous with perfect insight one, and greed for sensual desires expelled, one surely comes no more to any womb. Yesterday's explanation of the eight jhanas was a description how they work and what's an understanding of a person who knows that they are impermanent and that they are um, unsatisfactory because they're conditioned. So the liberation which was being uh, explained there was one through insight, even though the some of the jhanas would have been practiced but not to the amount and to the extent where they actually are liberating factors and the purifying factors. Although each moment of concentration purifies, it's a higher jhanas that purify to the extent where it's meaningful. So now comes the last um, explanation of the Buddha in this particular discourse and This last explanation talks about the eight emancipations. Now, the first one before that were the seven stations of consciousness and the two bases. These are eight emancipations, which are eight jhanas, and they emancipate the mind because they have the higher jhanas in them. They emancipate the mind from its defilements. Naturally, that only happens if they're done to the complete extent that's possible. That too is mentioned. Now, the first four are described in a very peculiar way. Ananda, there are these eight emancipations. What are the eight? One, not possessing material form, sees material forms. This is the first emancipation. Well, that's a totally different explanation from anything else that is usually mentioned. And it includes other aspects. It includes the aspects of powers, some powers which we usually consider uh, supernormal, which are available but not necessarily have to be practiced. There would be foolishness to practice if one isn't arahant. But this is a connection. In the first explanation of the jhanas, a connection was made to the different realms of existence, if you remember. Here the connection is made to the different powers which one can get. None of that is um, more described, but it's also what it means is that in the first jhanas, the body consciousness is not there, so there's not possessing material form. And as the body consciousness is not there, there is a um, meditation subject, in this case it would concern a casina, which is a color disc, and that's material form. So we can say that the same thing applies to the sensation in the first jhana because that is a mat- partly material form. 
So we have that as part of the explanation and on the other hand, the powers which can arise. I'm not going to go into those powers because they're certainly not desirable to practice unless one is fully enlightened. Then, on one perceiving material forms internally, sees material forms externally. That's the second emancipation. That again <clears throat> refers to the casino, the color disc, which is outside of one and then inside of one, if it becomes a meditation subject. It's a very useful one to, if one is um, visually inclined, uh, to arouse the jhanas, to get them going, and have are used for that purpose only, the casinos. But we can say that one perceiving material form internally, sees material form externally, can be used, for instance, if, we have the um, meditation subject of a visualization and bringing that inside of oneself, which is also the light that sometimes is seen. But on the other hand, if it's second, third, or fourth jhana, the form that we perceive internally does not necessarily have to be body. It can be any of the things that we perceive, which are sensation, emotion on all three levels, second, third, and fourth, all, all emotion. So that can be perceived internally, and it can be perceived also surrounding one. Now, if you know that I, when I speak about the loving-kindness meditation, I often say, fill yourself and surround yourself. Well, these are jhana experiences, and uh, I use them on purpose in order... <clears throat> to possibly help those who have not uh, come over the threshold of using the method, the method of watching the breath. Because filling one and surrounding one are part of jhana experiences, for particularly on the first, second, and third one. And one is released upon the idea of the beautiful. This is the third emancipation. This is always described as the idea of the beautiful is the uh, metta, loving-kindness, which uh, creates beauty within. And uh, <clears throat> that is very often the starting point for the jhanas and can actually also be a um, continuation in second jhana. So what we have here, actually on those three statements, the commentaries say all three contain all four jhanas. And all three statements contain also the supernatural powers. The supernatural powers are described at length, but I'm not going to go into that. As I said, they're not useful for us. Unless you can let me know total enlightenment, then I'll be glad to give you the book to read about it. <laughs> so these are the first four jhanas, but again, they are described not only as this materiality internally and externally, but also described as not being totally purifying. And then comes the explanation of the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th again, which is identical to what we had yesterday. Through the complete surmounting of perceptions of material form, the passing away of perception of impingement and non-attention, 
to perceptions of diversity contemplating space as infinite, one enters and dwells in the base of the infinity of space. Then comes the infinity of consciousness, then comes the base of nothingness, and then comes the base of neither perception or non-perception. I've explained those yesterday, 5, 6, 7, and 8. But now comes something new, come two new things. First of all comes an extension after the 8th jhana. Now obviously a number of these things are of no concern to some of you, unfortunately. However, at least they tell you what is possible. And not only possible on a level of um, far away, distant, unbelievably enormous concentration, but possible if one takes meditation seriously. But one's got to take it very seriously. If one just sort of dabbles in it, of course none of this happens. And dabbling is, of course, not very useful in anything. But if one takes meditation seriously, there's absolutely no reason why these states do not arise, should not arise, because they are the natural progression of mind. They're totally natural. They're also totally conditioned. So they're neither super mundane, nor are they supernatural. They're quite mundane and quite natural. It's exactly what every mind can do. We're coming now to something what not every mind can do. We're coming to something which is called neuroda. It's not mentioned, the word. And it's co- it says this, Having completely surmounted the base of neither perception nor non-perception, one enters and dwells in the cessation of perception and feeling. This is the eighth emancipation. Well, doesn't tell us much, does it? It's sometimes called the ninth jhana. But that is also not a very good description, so we'll stay with the word neuroda, which translated into English means cessation. It does not mean enlightenment, it just means cessation, namely cessation of perception and feeling. And what is happening here is that this state is open to non-returner and arahant. Non-returner and arahant have, particularly let's say non-returner, has had a past moment often enough to be able to enter into the cessation of the mental formations at will. And this is what's happening here. Because the non-returner, which is the third past moment, has had the absolute and utter experience that bliss only arises when there is no residue for a moment of this mind and body. This appears, or this also happens, of course, in the first and second path moment, but it doesn't take, it doesn't have enough impact to make it possible for the mind to go further into this uh, extension. Now, when one has had the third path moment, this is possible. And as a description, it is maybe necessary to explain that a past moment is a moment of cutting off. There's a one moment of cutting off. At that moment, there is nothing. It's one mind 
moment. Now that is very, very short in duration. One mind moment. It's neither unconscious, nor is it hypnotized, nor is it trance, nor is it anything at all. It is just nothing. There is a total cutting off of mental formations. It's a past moment. It is always followed by fruit moment. It has to be. Because the mind comes back from that happening and realizes that for one moment there was nobody there and is in total bliss, in utter relief, in complete joy and feels a letting go of a burden. And from that moment on, which is when it's the first past moment, from that moment on, the wrong view of self is utterly destroyed, not the wrong feeling of self. The wrong view of self is destroyed. One never again believes that there's somebody there who's manipulating one's life, either outside or inside. Nobody is there. Nobody is manipulating. Everything what we're doing is a mental formation. Unfortunately, an aberration of a mental formation. Always adding to it, this is me doing it. Or somebody's doing it to me, either way, which amounts to the same thing. There's always a me there. Now that view is completely discarded at that moment. And from then on, the end is, and the doubt whether this is the right path, whether the Buddha really knew what he's talking about, and whether oneself is capable of doing it, that's also removed, because obviously it's happened. And that is the first path moment. And the second path moment is what is called the once-returner. That person has to come back once more to finish off. Gets either is resting on his or her laurels or hasn't uh, really taken it to heart yet. So with the second pass moment is a repetition of the first one. And what it does, it just halves hate and greed. When hate and greed are halved, fear is halved. Hate and fear belong together. We don't fear what we love, we fear what we hate. So the more fear one has, the more hate one has. They always go hand in hand. So here with the once-returner, we have half that. And I think I mentioned already, greed becomes preference and hate becomes irritation, which is a, a great improvement, but obviously not quite enough yet to have total peace. The... Um, path moment as such can be said to be identical the fruit moment also more or less identical to the first happening but of course far more familiar and therefore like maybe more joyful because it's like greeting an old acquaintance whereas the first one is a bit of an uh, unknown and therefore more exciting and a little more unsure. These first two are possible for anyone who has seen the truth 
of the Buddha's teaching. If one hasn't seen that truth within oneself, of course, nothing can be done. The third one is far more difficult because the third one cuts off hate and greed entirely. And that's not so easy. In order to cut off hate and greed entirely, one has to realize the complete fantasy of this idea that there's somebody there. So when there's no more hate, there's no more fear. And by the same token, when there's no more greed, there's no more fear. Because if one doesn't want anything, one can't be afraid that somebody's going to take it away. One doesn't want it anyway. And particularly what we don't want at that moment is to remain in existence. It's just happening. That craving for existence has disappeared at that time. Now, obviously, the craving for existence has to disappear at every past moment. But unfortunately, until the idea of me is eradicated to a great extent, it always re-arises, particularly for the stream enterer, the first one. The stream enterer is the one that has a first past moment. He has entered the stream towards Nibbana, and uh, one says only has seven more lives that needs to come around here which for a stream enterer, well, most of them anyway, the idea of to have to come back seven times is abhorrent. So one practices quite nicely. One doesn't forget about practice. One knows what one is doing. Because the uh, personal experience of having nobody there is a total difference. It's a, a totally upside-down experience from what there ever has been before, so that the idea of having to do this seven times more is really um, not very pleasant. And so the stream enterer has a real impetus to practice. This has been actually, uh, that has been the experience. The, um, the same goes for the once-returner. The non-returner has a tendency to rest on his or her laurels. Because life becomes very easy. The me idea is only, as I said before, like the scent which is attached to the aroma attached to a flower. It's so minimal that it isn't bothersome. And not having any hate or greed, life is not very difficult. Restlessness remains because there isn't totality of experience and uh, of course it is said that um, ignorance remains because one hasn't quite let go of me and uh, conceit remains now that does not mean that that is person is a conceited person it's a me conceit the conceiving so it's all concerned with that idea that there's somebody there the uh, non-returner however has so much experience now with getting to that place of nothingness that it is possible to do that even under the circumstances of the following through on the eighth jhana, which will not become a path moment. It's not a cutting off moment as the path moments are, but it is a meditative experience which is based on the insight that 
there is nothing except conditioned arising, dependent arising, that there isn't anybody there, that everything is impermanent, that the um, dukkha remains as long as there is a knowing, even then there is a dukkha, so that the knowing can be let go of, so that at that time, having had all those um, consciousness moments of knowing these things, then the mind goes into a state where there is neither perception, no naming, no feeling. There is consciousness. But that kind of consciousness is then not called conditioned consciousness. This is a kind of consciousness which is not having anything to focus on. In other words, the person is not unconscious. But every aspect of the uh, living person is so reduced that one can actually sometimes mistake such a person as having died, which is, of course, quite untrue because the warmth of the body is there and the life force is there and the life force is connected to the consciousness at that time. But the consciousness doesn't have any focus to go. And it is said that one can't stay in that if one wishes for seven days but then one has to come out. But one doesn't have to stay seven days. It's also all right to stay for one hour. It's always followed by the bliss of the fruit moment because it has that same, um, same feeling about it as the past moment. So it follows, the fruit moment follows in that. So that is um, Niroda, and it's only available for the non-returner and for the arahant. And so it is said that it has three conditions. And the three conditions are the previous preparation, which means having got this far, and the attention to the signless, the non-attention to all signs, which means there's no attention on anything which can be called a significant um, thing that we can put our attention on. There's nothing there at all. So the, while the consciousness is there, it isn't a moment when there is unconsciousness, but yet it is not a moment which has a knowing in it. And in that respect, it is very similar to the past moment. The past moment is not unconscious, but since it has nothing to con- be conscious of, there is no knowing. So the past moment is not one that one knows. Afterwards one knows there was nothing. Sounds a bit complicated, doesn't it? Anyway, this is the ninth jhana or neuroda. And uh, unless one is a non-returner or an arahant, one doesn't have to try for that because it doesn't happen anyway. But it is necessary to mention it because this is the ending of this particular discourse. And then the Buddha gives a quite an elaborate explanation of what's happening and how to do the jhanas. Ananda, when a bhikkhu attains the eight emancipations in forward order, in reverse order, and in both forward and reverse order, which means one has to be able to do the jhanas up and down, But at other places it's also mentioned when he attains them and emerges from them wherever he wants. So that one can 
go to any of them at any time and jump. In other words, one has to be so um, good at the jhanas that one can recognize each one and go to it at will, which again tells that this is a deliberate uh, direction of the mind. This is not haphazard, this is not potluck, this is deliberate. The mind knows exactly where it's going. And not only that, the rhoda is also deliberate. The mind knows where it's going. Now, to have a mind that knows where it's going, it's got to be trained. And that's what we're trying to do here. So that eventually the mind always knows where it's going. It doesn't ever go off on tangents. It doesn't ever go into directions which are not um, pure or beneficial. So that the mind is completely trained. So... Um, when he attains them and emerges from them wherever he wants, in whatever way he wants, and for as long as he wants. In other words, one can stay in each jhana as long as one wants, and one can come out in whichever way one wants to, either slowly or immediately, or by coming together with another jhana. In other words, to be able to go through them at, in any which way one uh, desires, and when, through the destruction of the cankers, he here and now enters and dwells in the cankerless liberation of mind. I read it. Liberation by wisdom, having realized it for himself with direct knowledge, then he is called a bhikkhu who is liberated in both ways. And ananda, there is no liberation in both ways, higher or more sublime than this one. Thus spoke the Exalted One, the Venerable Ananda, satisfied, rejoiced in the Exalted One's words. Well, the first thing that's being said here is that this is the highest liberation, both ways. Now, jhanas alone don't work. Jhanas are conditioned. Jhanas are mundane, worldly. They are conditioned by concentration, and concentration is conditioned by mind or mental formation. And mental formation is conditioned by mentality and materiality, which is conditioned by consciousness. And either we can say it is conditioned by consciousness, as it was done here, or it's conditioned by rebirth consciousness. So it's dependent on being here. We've got to exist. And in existence, there's always Dukkha. And this is the thing that the Buddha did when he did the eight jhanas. He had two teachers. One taught him seven jhanas and the other one taught him the eight. And both of them said that was the highest attainment and that is it. And now he should be their co-teacher. And the second one even said, well, you can have all my students. You can do it better than I can. And the Buddha said, "Uh uh-uh, that can't be right. Because not only is it conditioned, but coming out of them, there is dukkha. The jhanas don't last. There is dukkha again. And even though this is a very high attainment, I have to find out, the Buddha said, how one can get rid of dukkha once and for all. So this was the reform movement that the Buddha initiated, that inside has to follow serenity that calm and serenity come first and insight come after. And it is still to this day a reform movement in India because, again, in most aspects of the um, 
Hindu practices, the jhanas are considered to be the or the eighth event uh, sometimes is considered to be the highest, sometimes even some lower ones. There is one movement that doesn't consider that, but there are many that do. So the reform movement of the Buddha only took place in such a way that a new religion got started. And that happens usually with reformers. It happened to Jesus also. He was interested and intent on reforming the Jewish religion, which needed it badly. But what happened? Nothing. Had to start, this follower started a new one. And this is what happened to the Buddha. He wanted to reform what was going on, but instead a new one got started. Well, we don't have to um, be unhappy about that, because at least we have his instructions. So the thing that he was going beyond the eight jhanas was not only this Niroda, because that too was known. It's the inside path which comes from it, that all that is also uh, conditioned and has therefore the necessity to be. So the cankers, having the destruction of the cankers, the cankers are usually what we call the three cravings plus ignorance. Now the three cravings are the craving for sensual gratification, the craving for existence, the craving and adhering to views, and then ignorance. Now the word ignorance always means that there is that ignorance of the non-self. That's all it ever means doesn't mean that we are stupid, doesn't mean that we haven't gone to school or college. It uh, just means that we are ignoring the third noble truth, the noble truth of cessation, of liberation, Nibbana. That's all that means. Now, the clinging to, and this is the cankers are called the clinging to, the clinging to the sense pleasures, the clinging to existence, and the clinging to our views. Now, the views, of course, the wrong views, are the wrong views of self. And we have already discussed that, but I will get back to that also, because there's something else that the Buddha talked about with that. Because when we're going to start on the Noble Eightfold Path, the first item on that is right view. And so we're going to get back to our wrong views. And our wrong views based on our identification systems are wrong views based primarily on our thought process. The thought process which constantly puts something in to where there is nothing. Namely, there may be a sense contact and what we put in is I see. Now it's not the words it's a thought and the feeling. There's a sense contact of a sense base with a sense object. When they come together, contact, and then there is sense consciousness. And what we then have as um, our wrong view is that it's uh, somebody sitting behind the eye, here behind these eyes, and doing the seeing. Whoever invented that? We did. We invented it ourselves. Somebody sitting in there and behind the ears and listening to all the sounds. 
but we can never find that little gnome that's sitting in there. And because we can't find it, we've got to constantly confirm it and have it confirmed by others. Somebody has to confirm it for us by loving us, appreciating us, uh, uh, agreeing with us, uh, helping us, soothing us, and the, all the rest of it. And then if nobody is there to do that, then we have to constantly do it ourselves. And if it doesn't work, we become depressed. And all we're actually doing is trying to support a myth, a fantasy. And that support system of that myth and fantasy takes up all our time, energy, and all our operations in the world. And since it never works, there is never the satisfaction. So we have this view of self, which is this clinging to the view. And with that, with the clinging to the view, comes automatically the other two. The clinging to our sense pleasures and the clinging to existence. It's automatic. It can't, have, it can't be any other way. Because if there's somebody sitting in there who is called me and has you know, all the identification systems, then that person obviously wants to exist. What else? I mean, there is this little person sitting in there and it wants to exist. And it has a hard time existing anyway, not because it gets Dukkha all the time. Some people identify with Dukkha very well, and they are totally uh, self-identified um, with their Dukkha. I am always so unhappy when I see this, or I get so depressed because of that, or all these things are also self-identification. That's not the um, difficulty the difficulty that we are having with that wrong view is that it's constantly escaping. This little person, which doesn't really exist, but we think exists, it's always escaping somehow or other. And so we need to bring it back and say, now look, you're doing fine, come on. You know, and then that's fine again for little one and we have to do something else for it. And then we do all sorts of absurd things, of course. Um, so this view makes those other two things happen. The craving or clinging to existence, not just craving. The cankers are usually mentioned as clinging to. And the Buddha said, Nibbana is non-clinging. could be said outflow, but it, it, it's just difficult to, to translate the word. And it's, uh, the word canker is what we usually taints. Sometimes it's used, our taints. That's what we are tainted with. And it's all based on this wrong view that we have and the, the ignoring of the right view. And with those four, of course, we constantly revolve in a circular motion. And if we can't make a dent in that, we keep on revolving. And we keep on being angry, upset, fearful, passionate, worried, all those things which make life so very unpleasant. So there's something has to happen. And this is what the Buddha has been trying to explain to us and I have been trying to interpret all these days that we've been sitting here that there isn't any little girl or little boy sitting inside, hearing through the ears, looking through the eyes, and so on. There is nothing but dependent arising. 
And so I like to urge you again to check on dependarizing. How did this come about? Why did I get this urge? Why do I have this feeling? What's happening? Whom am I trying to support by that? Well, obviously the me. If one gets angry, for instance, what's all the reason for that? Who is getting angry? What is getting angry? What's the, what's the purpose of it all? What's happening there? Where's the condition, the cause? Cause and condition, the same thing. Where's the cause for it all? Because something hit the ear or hit the eye, sense contact, and the mind explains it. Somebody else would have explained it totally different. So dependent arising, starting with sense contact, which is usually our starting point, and then going backward from that. Unless we get that clear, we're not going to make a dent into this business of the wrong views. Now, he says that the destruction of the cankers is possible, and he dwells, he enters and dwells in the cankerless liberation. Now, obviously, if you dwell, if one dwells in the cankerless liberation, that's around, that's fully enlightened, because all other three, well, particularly the first two, don't dwell in that. They have the experience, they have the right view, but they can't live in it. And dwelling means living in it, because the feeling of self has not been removed. It's a knowing that has been removed, or the unknowing that's been removed. Now, with the second step, the dwelling becomes a little more habitable. One can live in it a little longer and at more ease. With the third step, the dwelling becomes even more habitable and one can live in it longer. But only the arahant that lives in that liberation all the time. Never the I thought and feeling arise, ever. There's nothing there anywhere to arrive. So that means this is arahant dwells in the cankerless liberation of mind, liberated by wisdom, and having realized it for himself is direct knowledge. Now the word direct means, of course, not just knowing. It means the experience. And the experience is always the one that brings the direct knowledge. And this is what the Buddha's teaching is all about. It's got to be direct. It's got to be experienced. So all this is information. If you can remember any of it, it becomes knowledge, your knowledge. And if you can experience it, it becomes direct knowledge. And when it's direct knowledge, then it's useful for liberation. But there are these three steps. One is information, the second one is remembering and using, and then experiencing. And as one experiences, it has to be the understood experience. And that's where the Buddha's words come in. Because when we have an experience and we don't understand what it means, it's not useful to us. We can't make any use of it. So when we have the, the information and then have a remembrance of it, at least that we have the knowledge, then when we do experience, we have that understanding and then we can actually re reform our thinking process. And this is what this is all about. It completely and utterly 
changes one thinking process into a different channels where in the past the channels may have been I want it nice I want to be safe and secure I want to look after me I want to be also helpful at times I want to meditate all that is gone there's a different channel then in the mind which says there is meditation there is that way of being here in mind and body but there's nobody behind all that and when it breaks up it disappears so with that then the safety factor of this mind and body is no longer of any uh, consequence because it's not going to be safe anyway I mean has anybody invented safety for anyone it's not possible it's, we're all going to have the destruction of the body. So the safety factor is no longer a consequence, the protection factor is no longer a consequence, the worry about the future is of no consequence, nothing is of that consequence. The only thing that a Buddha would always do and that the other Arahants um, have done is trying to help others to find that cessation from suffering which, of course, only can be found when there is a cessation of the personal suffering. Now, that's a direct knowledge, and this is said to be, it's more, this, on both ways, a liberation in both ways, is more sublime than any other liberation. And it is, of course, also described as the direct pathway. Because if one does the higher jhanas, and it's always concerned with the higher jhanas, if one does these higher jhanas, there is an automatic liberation taking place, namely a liberation from wrong thought and wrong view. It's impossible to experience a totality of consciousness, an infinity of consciousness, and still believe that there's somebody sitting in here having consciousness. It's totally impossible. One cannot experience one and still believe the other. So that's why the higher jhanas bring with it an automatic understanding. They don't bring with it an automatic liberation, but they're certainly the direct path, and they're the pathway that the Buddha took himself. Now, this one is called um, to, the, uh, to be liberated in both ways. And because the higher jhanas show one this already like an advance or a preview, the higher jhanas show the preview of the me not being there, the past moments become not only possible but also easier. I would say the past moments become possible. There's a little verse here. Now the question always comes up. What happens to a, an arahant, a liberated one? As a flame struck by a gust of wind, the exalted one said, reaches its end and can be reckoned no more, so the sage liberated from the mental body 
reaches his end and can be reckoned no more. <laughs> this is often misunderstood to be annihilation. There was never anybody there to be annihilated. And this misunderstanding is so widespread that even books are written about it. And yet it's so totally clear. Since there's never been a me, what can be annihilated? The only thing that we could say could ever get annihilated is wrong view. And the less wrong view there's in the world, the better the world is off. But since this is very minute in numbers, it hardly makes a dent. There are very few people with right view. Once more on the pathway to Neroda, because anyone who can do a jhanas has an opening towards that. And if one has an understanding what that means, it may help to have a past moment. It means, first of all, the insight. The insight into the fact that the whole idea that we have about ourselves and the world is upside down. It's completely impermanent. We think it's permanent. Something is solid. This element looks solid. The uh, things that we think are pleasurable, such as our sensual pleasures, are actually dukkha, because we've got to some constantly strive for them, and striving is dukkha. And the person whom we think we are is a wrong view, as I said. So that insight is necessary, those three. Now that same insight is necessary for the past moment. So there they have very common ground. And the determination to enter into that or to go towards that and then be in that, which does not contain any of those wrong thoughts, views, and none of the friction which every moment of consciousness contains. Because even consciousness is constantly moving, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. There's nothing in the whole of the universe that doesn't come and go. And so, even just bare consciousness is also doing that, and therefore containing friction. Now, within the Neroda aspect, that bare consciousness is reduced to its minimum. But in the past moment, that is even reduced more. So realizing that all that that we experience has dukkha in it, and therefore is something that we can get away from and go towards that moment where there's absolutely nothing, where we get to the what's called the unborn. And that's unconditioned. Where there's nothing, there's the unborn, there's unconditioned, and because it's unborn, it also doesn't die. Only that which doesn't get born doesn't die. Everything else dies. So this, the, the, the way towards the neuroda and the way towards the past moment are very similar, except for the fact that in neuroda the consciousness is still a little stronger than in the past moment. Both of them as a determination, realize that all that one wants is the totality of peace. 
and the totality of peace has to have none of this movement in it. That's the only peacefulness there is, the real peacefulness. Now, the one thing that bugs most people most are the sensual desires. The uh, sensual desires, which are an outcome of the wrong view of self and are bound up with the craving for existence. The craving for sensual desire and the craving for existence are the two different cravings, but the feeling is the same that they bring about. They bring about exactly the same feeling. Both of them bring about the feeling of anxiety. Am I going to get what I want? And obviously, we know underneath we won't. We cannot get permanent existence. There's no way we can get it. And we can also not get only sensual pleasures. So we know that. And therefore, we have in the first place anxiety. Am I going to get what I want? Have I got it? Since if I did get something like sensual pleasure, then the anxiety is, can I keep it? Because we know we can't. So with all that, we are actually producing a kind of non-peacefulness, inner irritation, lack of joy, by just wrong thinking. If we were to think on a level of deeper penetration, and not just so superficially, that most people would like to do, we would see this quite clearly, that we are producing our constant dukkha just by that one thing, by craving for sensual pleasure. We can't have it. It comes and it goes, but we would like it all the time. And when it comes, we are already anxious because having come and gone to its top, it already goes downhill again, like everything else. Having been born, we go towards death. Where else? Having got the sensual pleasure to its peak, boom, it starts going downhill. So that is never, ever satisfying. Not even for a moment. In the beginning, we are anxious whether we're going to get it. Having got it, we're anxious whether we can keep it. Having got it to the maximum point, it starts going downhill. And yet, this is how our world revolves, and we with it, until we make a stop. We say, no more. This is enough. I've tried often enough. So this sense desire and sensual desire for sensual pleasure is the one thing that the Buddha calls renunciation. Now, sometimes, or very often, this word renunciation is associated with living in a cave, being a monk or a nun, eating nothing or eating once a day, or um, any sort of thing which is a physical hardship of some form. Well, that also exists in the Buddha's teaching. They're called the Dutangas, the austerities. And the Buddha does not recommend that one does them all the time. One can try them once in a while. There are 13 different ones. And most of them totally unsuitable in the Western countries because people would put one in a mental asylum. 
in the East are perfectly okay. Everybody knows what one is doing. But these are austerities. They are not renunciations. Renunciation is something entirely different. The word renunciation is used by the Buddha for renouncing one's sensual desires. And when one renounces them, by forcing oneself to do that, that's excellent discipline. They will rise again naturally. But having seen that one can get along without them, without that gratification, one sees that they aren't utterly necessary. I mean, that is, for instance, uh, one aspect of fasting not just because it's healthy. One sees one can get along without food. It's wonderful. That that doesn't mean that one isn't going to eat again. It means it's possible. The same goes for all other sensual desires that might plague one. Well, naturally, the strongest of all sensual desires is sexual desire. It's always at the top of the list. And it is a natural one because we are living in the realm of sensual desire. We're living in the Kama Loka. But this is all on the mundane worldly level. And since we are trying to be, get beyond that mundane worldly level, transcend it. So sense desires are the obstacles in the way. And the sense desire has many facets. It's not only sexual desire, because that sexual desire is extremely strongly uh, bound up with the, the craving to be the desire for existence, obviously, even biologically it is. So it's not only bound up with the pleasures, it's bound up with biology. So it's the strongest thing. It's the existence and it's the pleasure. But there are many others that also are obstacles. So the first thing that the Buddha says about renunciation is it's renouncing sense desires. Now how do we do that? In the first instance, and I've mentioned that already, is it's the calming of the senses. It is not putting one's mind on it. If it arises, take it away. There are other things that one can put one's mind on. But a much stronger help are the jhanas. If one can do the jhanas, one realizes already in the first one, if it's strong enough, certainly in the second one, that Nothing that one can get through the senses has any equivalent to what one can get through the concentration. The sensual pleasures are a pale substitute to the jhanas. Now that has to become so imbued inside of one that the desire for sensual pleasure becomes less and less because there are strong obstacles for getting on with the liberation from the cankers. As you can see, I'm referring to the liberation from the cankerless liberation, because the cankers are that. They are the sense desire and the desire for existence. So the first thing that happens when we get into the jhanas is the separation from the hindrances. Now, every time we're in a jhana, any one of them, doesn't matter, first one, anyone, the separation from our hindrances. And the hindrances, the five hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. Now, the more often we separate ourselves from that, obviously, the less they plague us. The more often we separate ourselves from dirt, 
the cleaner we will be. So therefore, the jhanas need to be practiced just for that simple reason already. Not only because they take us to the past moment, even for that already. They've got, in order, in when we practice them, at the time of practice, the hindrances cannot arise. But even as a residual effect, there has to be something left within which says, this is better than sensual pleasure. We learn that we can be independent of the sense contacts. Therefore, we must practice the jhanas, the independence from sense contact, which makes it so much easier to live peacefully and calmly. We don't have to search for anything. We have that within what we're looking for out there. Buddha calls it the joy of solitude. One can't be lonely. If one can do the jhanas, one has the most wonderful companions. The companions of joy, of peace, the companions of universality and totality. What more does one need? Well, there are always people, but there's never loneliness. Solitude and loneliness are not the same thing. There are also being able to have that renunciation which happens in the jhanas, but which we can carry on and carry forward in daily life, help us also to endure suffering without getting completely um, depressed by it. If we have renounced to some extent the pleasure of the senses, we don't look for it, then when the displeasure of the senses arises, it's just as well. It doesn't matter. It is just the displeasure of the senses, where before it was the pleasure of the senses. Both of them are dependently arisen. And so when we have the ability to let go, then we can also let go of this constant search for comfort. This is such an... um, overriding impulse, this search for comfort, that practically everything that we do, we buy, and we think of is searching for comfort. On the first level, physical, let's not be cold, let's not be hot, let's not be hungry, let's not be thirsty, let's not have a pain here or pain there, let's just be comfortable. It's not possible to be always comfortable. And if we spend our time trying to be comfortable, we are wasting our life. That doesn't mean we should be uncomfortable. It just means that we should stop looking, trying to be comfortable. It's not comfortable to sit in meditation. Nobody ever dreamt that it was comfortable. So let's be uncomfortable. It doesn't matter. We can surmount that. And if we can surmount the search for comfort, we can then be also surmounting the dukkha, the suffering, which, we, and, uh, which arises when things are not exactly the, so comfortable as we would want them. Because we have surmounted that search for the, for the comfort. And also we are looking, of course, constantly for emotional comfort. Well, nobody is always emotionally comfortable. It just is not possible. As long as we have still got somebody in there, a little me, 
a little boy or a little girl, that is always going to be uncomfortable because somebody says something, something is to be seen, to be heard, to be experienced, which isn't just the way we want it. And this discomfort, we, of course, aggravate that. We make it worse, the mental discomfort, the emotional discomfort, by all the wrong thinking. He did it, she did it, they did it. I mean, that's terribly uncomfortable because there's nothing we can do about it. They did it. He did it. She did it. And the more uncomfortable we get, the worse it gets. So we have a way. We have a guideline. We have a method. And if we see that not only do the jhanas have an automatic uh, renouncing of sensual desire. Because if we're sitting here wanting to eat, we couldn't possibly get into the first jhana. And if we're sitting here uh, being terribly unhappy about the discomfort in the right knee, we can't get in the first jhana either. So we have to renounce that kind of comfort-seeking for doing the jhanas. And then being in them, there is nothing to seek because we've got what we wanted. We have the inner joy. So that is one way of renouncing sense desires. But we've got to do a little more than that. We've got to be deliberate about it. Because if we don't, that liberation, that cankerless liberation, is not even a possibility. It's way off in the wild blue yonder somewhere. But when we can renounce sensual desire to the point where we can see that they do not produce the sensual pleasures, they don't produce anything, all they do is give us anxiety, then we can have a much freer way towards our uh, meditation. And this is another thing at the beginning of meditation. We could make that kind of determination that we're not going to try to be comfortable, we're not going to try to be concentrated, that's all. That may be helpful. And the other thing which I said about meditation, I'll repeat, is... Forget about I'm meditating. Just realize that concentration is also dependently arisen. That's all. And it's a mental formation. So make the mental formation happen. That's all. It's not I'm meditating. Another thing that the Buddha said about someone who has renounced sense desires is that wisdom arises. The two are connected. Because, you see, sensual desires are compared by the Buddha to a water pond into which many different colors have been thrown. And as one looks into this water pond, one cannot see one's likeness, or one sees all these beautiful different colors, and that's all one wants. So if one has sense desire, one cannot see what's beyond. One cannot see with wisdom. One only sees what one desires. And therefore, the renouncing of sense desire brings with it um, wisdom arising. Now, again, there is no way that we can completely negate the needs of the body. We cannot and we should not. We never should, but we should make a very definite uh, investigation where our sensual desires obstruct our meditative path and our inside path, both the serenity path and the inside path. Where do they obstruct that? 
where is it that I'd rather like it nice rather than doing what would take away Dukkha forever. We have come to the end of this discourse, which took quite a long time, and um, has as its ingredient a non-personality. Everything is explained on the basis of the conditions, which are the causes and then the effects, and therefore leads to complete liberation. Now, before I will get into the Noble Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, I think I will recap all the bits and pieces which are necessary for practice in order to have this particular understanding as a direct knowledge and not just as bits of information. So tomorrow I'll try and do a recap on all the bits that were necessary and that came up for practice. So now is the time to ask some questions if you have any. Yes. Could you just elaborate a little bit on the difference between intention and desire? You have an intention to get into a john or something so you're not craving it. Okay. A desire looks for the result. A desire always has a result in mind. So when one sits down and has a desire to get into a jhana, one wants to get it. But an intention is something else. Namely, it's not the word intention doesn't help you very much, determination. The determination is to be concentrated. Never mind the result. Determination is to get the mind together. But desire is to get something out of that. I want something, I want to get something. And that's always connected with dukkha. And also with, because it has expectation in it, it's connected also with disappointment. So the only thing to do is to be determined to concentrate, that's all. And not allow the mind to play games as it usually does. As it likes to do. That's all. Is that clear or is there something yeah, else? Now, you talked also about the person that knows the John is that they're moving around. And again, it's the same thing. They're not desiring to go from one to the other. They're just determining, I'll go to one or the other. No, it's conditioned. And it's just the determination to do that huh? without desire. Well, you know. <laughs> I think that's hair splitting. Yeah. What you're doing. Does it help? Just, I don't know. I'm just trying to understand <laughs> how. It's just determination. Yeah. Okay. The mind can be determined not to think anything that is unwholesome. Is that a desire? It's hair splitting, isn't it? If you determine never to think anything unwholesome, that's excellent. <laughs> so desire is looking for something to get. And usually it's looking for something more. Just a little more and I'll be right.
sense pronunciation then, in a way when you're determining your or you're trying to sorry re, you're trying to renounce something when when you make a determination to be concentrated you're trying to renounce yes Yes, and all the other uh, irrelevant thoughts and yeah. and all the other um, things that happen, particularly the me thought. And when you determine from going from one jhana to another, that's only directing the mind, that's all. That's all you do, you direct the mind. Just as when you uh, determine to change unwholesome thoughts to wholesome ones, you direct the mind. You don't allow the mind to play games. So the the desire that uh, for sensual desire is to get something which is going to give pleasure. That's then your expectation is involved. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Be able to practice the higher jhanas. Must the first four be perfected? And the second part of the question is, what do you mean by perfected? <laughs> <laughs> well, that second part of the question that was answered in here. That was that was answered in here. In forward order and reverse order, in both forward and reverse order attains them and emerges from them wherever he wants, in whatever way he wants, and for as long as he wants. So that's perfected. Not necessarily. It's quite possible to go to the higher jhanas without having a complete mastery over the first four. And having done the uh, higher jhanas means that the, medita- that the concentration is better so that it's then easier to perfect the others. It all works hand in hand. So it's, um, in fact, there are some people that sometimes go from the third to the fifth and can't seem to get into the fourth. But eventually, going backward, they get into it. The same happens with the second Many people find it very difficult to have inner joy because they don't even know what it's like. They never had it. So they have no idea what to relate to. But they can get to the third one and then they can go backward and get it. That also happens. Anything can happen. And usually does. <laughs> yes? At what stage um, would a, a householder, a person living in the world, need to renounce that? Uh, the need, uh, renounce the uh, household when he or she becomes arahant. So, the, the practice, the discipline of practice needed to attain the higher jhanas wouldn't be, um, wouldn't need you to separate from within. No. Arahant usually finds it very difficult, if not impossible, to live in a household life, but anything below that's quite all right. It's entirely uh, up to what kind of mind states a person has. But uh, one can become enlightened as a householder. Only then one might find it very difficult because there are too many things to be done and attended to. But enlightenment doesn't depend on where one lives. 
It depends on what one thinks. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that the me inside of you has vanished and that its place is being taken by immeasurable love and compassion. Unconditional. That you're filled with that from head to toe, surrounded by it. permeated by that unconditional love and compassion but no me that's having it just that Embrace the person nearest you with that unconditional love and compassion. Just having it immeasurably large, but nobody owning it. Now embrace everyone here with that immeasurably large love and compassion. Not you, just love and compassion.
And now embrace your parents with unconditional love and compassion. No reason, no discrimination, immeasurably large, nobody owning it. Just a condition of the heart. Now think of those who are near and dear to you. Fill them and embrace them with unconditional love and compassion, without any reason, (coughs) without you, just the love. Now think of all your good friends and fill their hearts with love and compassion. Embrace them with love and compassion. Not owning it, not coming from you, just the condition of the heart which pours itself out to others. And think of all the people you know who come into your daily lives. Fill them and embrace them with love and compassion. The warmth of love, the care of compassion. 
no judgment, no discrimination, just pouring it out of the heart. Think of anyone who you think really needs love and compassion. <laughs> 